Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. I have Amanda here with me. Hey there. And today we are talking about hope, but not the good kind of hope. <laughs> the kind of hope that leads you astray. The kind of hope that's like, I sure hope the Iraqis uh, greet us as liberators. <laughs> or I sure hope I can vote for Donald Trump to stick it to the establishment and nothing too terrible will happen. <laughs> So, the, yeah, this is the kind of hope that is a stand-in for science or critical thinking. Yeah, false or, hope. Uh, yeah, often. And uh, so it, com- it comes in all forms. We, we have some historical references. We've got a couple of clips for you. Uh, but we'll start where we are right now. So uh, there's an article in the Washington Post today or yesterday, I believe, um, talking about uh, how America is reopening, despite all evidence <laughs> that points to uh, the fact that no one should be reopening just yet. That sounds hopeful, though. Oh, but it's so hopeful, right? So, um, so I'm sure everyone's excited. But here's here's the deal: more than quote more than 40 states have announced plans to lift restrictions, even though only a handful have met the minimum criteria for reopening, as outlined by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The consequences of this are all too predictable because the science around COVID-19 has not changed. Without a vaccine or cure, the only thing keeping the disease in check has been keeping people separated from one another. Once social distancing is relaxed, COVID-19 will again spread with explosive speed. As everyone knows by now, the incubation period, the time between exposure and symptoms, is up to 14 days. It could take another week or two before people become ill enough to seek medical care and another week or more for those who are severely ill to succumb to the virus. The danger here is that policymakers and the public will jump to the wrong conclusions if they don't immediately see the numbers increasing. Instead of breathing a sigh of relief, they should prepare for the surge that will inevitably arrive a month or so from now. What New York went through at its peak will happen in communities across the country. Hospitals will become overwhelmed with ill patients. Staff will be forced to ration personal protective equipment. There will be shortages of intensive care unit beds and ventilators. And that is written by Liana S. Wen. She's an emergency physician and visiting professor at George Washington University's Milken Institute School of Public Health. And she previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. And we're going to be focusing today on where this sort of hope comes from. And primarily, it's desperation. Yeah. Desperation breeds this sort of, well, obviously, desperate hope. A grasping sort of hope yeah. that looking anything, for any, yeah, looking for anything. Give me any drug, and I hope it'll work. Let me go back to work, and I hope I don't mm-hmm. get sick. Also, believing that that the leaders and people in charge are are doing the right thing, and and the thing that's that we should be doing, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, they must know something we don't. Uh, they wouldn't possibly put us in danger if uh, you know. If things were really that bad. And I think that a a really great historical, certainly not parallel, but closer, closer than is comfortable to a parallel is the AIDS epidemic. And so I have a clip for you from a show called Epidemic, suitably enough, Mm -hmm. um, about the AIDS epidemic and the sort of parallel history of that. And it turns out uh, Tony Fauci was there all along. Right. And uh, so this clip starts speaking with an ACT UP AIDS activist telling the story of his interaction with Dr. Fauci. Our job was to put Tony between a rock and a hard place. Uh, we were the rock. 
and the hard place were these older and more esteemed immunologists and virologists who were not willing to let us in. These researchers didn't want to answer to activists. They had their own ideas about how their research should go. But ACT UP was tired of waiting. I was tasked with giving him the bad news. I said, Tony, we need to tell you that we're planning a gigantic demonstration at the NIH over these issues that we've been talking with you about for months, and we're, we're just not getting the answers we should be getting. And he was caught off guard. He tried to talk us out of it. He tried to ask for more time. And I said, well, it's going to take us a couple of months to prepare this gigantic demonstration. So yeah, sure, we'll cancel it if you can give us everything we want. The months went by, but their demands were never met. So on May 21st, 1990, thousands of ACT UP members occupied the NIH campus. We're talking about the fact that they don't allow people of color into their trials. We're talking about the fact that they don't care about women, they don't care about children, and that their trials are inefficient, dysfunctional, and we're here to let them know that we're not going to tolerate it anymore. Peter was one of the first to get arrested. And this big, burly cop had me with my hands tied behind my back with one of those zip line things. Um, and he was dragging me down the hall of Building 31. And then I see coming at me down the hall, there's Tony Fauci uh, with his white lab coat and uh, walking towards me. And he goes, Peter? <laughs> he recognized me and I go, Tony. And he says, are you okay? And I said, yeah, just doing my job. Uh, I said, how about you? He said, yeah, we're, we're trying to keep things operating <laughs> while you've got us surrounded. Uh, and I said, well, you know, we'll talk later. And, and he, we both kind of chuckled as I got walked past him. And the cop was looking at us like, who the f- am I got on my arm here? <laughs> yeah. The protest was called Storm the NIH. It was one of the biggest demonstrations ACT UP ever organized. I should cap this off by saying it was successful. Two months later, in June of 1990, at the International AIDS Conference, the executive committee had a meeting there with Tony, and they caved. ACT UP got what they wanted, patient advocates with a voice on the trial committees, something that's now standard on all NIH trials. And more HIV trials included people of color and women. We started dramatically improving clinical trial designs so that they enrolled quickly and got answers faster. Storm the NIH made the research process more accountable to patients and streamlined the way drugs get approved in the United States, something that's on a lot of people's minds right now. How do you balance the needs of good science when people are desperate for treatment now? You know, I'm thinking now in terms of the context of COVID-19, a number of the folks in the administration now have been big proponents of right to try. You know, is there such a thing as giving access too quickly or approving too quickly? Yes. AIDS activists learned that the hard way. We found ourselves in 1992-93 with three or four AIDS drugs on the market, but the death rate was continuing to rise. 
we had added a few months to people's lives here or there, but HIV was clobbering us still every year. It was just getting worse. So we've been hearing a lot, just as one example, about hydroxychloroquine and its role in treating COVID based on the experience you had with drug development and approval. What is your reaction to that? We are totally in agreement with Fauci on this, that, uh, you know, not so fast. We do have to prove this. Science is about doing the, the most good for the greatest number. And AIDS activism was able to speed that up. But you can't throw away the foundation. That's what AIDS activists learned the hard way. The very first thing we screamed about in 1987, we complained about placebos. We were wrong. We were wrong about that. Placebos are morally correct. And in times like this, they're absolutely necessary. You can't just tell everybody to rush to their pharmacy and start taking something. No matter how desperate they might be. Exactly. You can really cause mass harm. Another thing in common with the AIDS pandemic is the challenge of getting people to care about something that they think will never affect them. We've always tried to build on a base of social solidarity. One of our chants when we were in ACT UP and we would be sitting blocking traffic somewhere and getting arrested would be um, that we're fighting for your lives too. Mark says ACT UP focused on that message of solidarity, that we're all in this together. But there was another reason Mark thinks the tide changed in their favor. The epidemic had gotten so big with 50,000 deaths per year that probably there was a tipping point where at some point most Americans might have known somebody who died of AIDS or might have known somebody who knew, knew, whose family was affected by it. And I think it caused kind of a sea change in the way the American people reacted to, to the epidemic and also to the groups that were affected by it. Do you think people really had to know someone who was infected for this to really get through. That's sort of my concern with coronavirus, that it's only once it hits a community that people know somebody or they themselves are affected that they will take this seriously. And, and by then it might be too late. By then it is too late. I mean, many of us spent the whole 80s in a state of terror, knowing that we've been exposed, not knowing our status, not knowing whether we were going to live or die. And I think the vast majority of the population now has exactly the same feeling where they don't know if they've been exposed. They don't know if they're going to get sick. Every single person is at risk. Mark remembers how the gay community and others struggling with AIDS were brushed aside as disposable. Today, some politicians are making similar comparisons with elderly Americans. That's very dangerous. When any society gets to that point, when really what we should be doing is scaling up so that we don't have those shortages, so we don't have to make those horrible decisions at the side of the sick and the dying, is to make sure that we do have enough PPE and ventilators and ICU beds and staff so that we can take care of the surge when it happens, rather than sit there and decide who should live and who should die. But mobilizing people in the age of coronavirus is very different than during the AIDS pandemic. What was so great about ACT UP was that you could leave your house where you were feeling isolated and afraid and helpless and go to a group like ACT UP and start doing political action, start educating yourself, start educating your community and go demonstrate together somewhere. And now, you know, everyone's locked in, so we can't do that, right? We can, well, we can get together on conference calls or email listservs, but we can't 
go demonstrate somewhere because it's dangerous and we can't even go to a meeting to plan it. So we're going to have to alter our kind of activism to be more digital and virtual. And so that's exactly what Mark and Peter and others are doing. At the beginning of March, they and a group of other scientists, epidemiologists, and activists founded the COVID Working Group of New York. A lot of us are just really staggered by disbelief about the incompetence that this administration has, has shown. In the slow rollout of the U.S.-made test, the whole wasted month of February where we could have rolled out that test quickly and got ahead of the virus. You know, when other countries have been testing like thousands and thousands of people, we were testing in the tents here in New York City until late February when we finally were just outraged by that and wrote a letter to the feds and asked them to let New York City do its own test. By late February, the the feds allowed New York City and New York State to start doing their own PCR, and we started testing a lot higher volumes. And and that, unfortunately, was a little late because we already had a lot of undiagnosed infection here in the city, and um, we're now seeing the explosive consequences of that month-long delay. They're using the same skills they developed during the AIDS crisis to mobilize support for healthcare workers and patients struggling with COVID-19. We are mostly running interference between frontline public health officials and politicians that are not acting quick enough, trying to help the Department of Health officials in New York City, the Department of Health officials in New York State, and our public health officials on the White House task force to help them build up a political army around them that makes sure that their voices are heard and that they ultimately win the arguments against sometimes hesitant political leadership. We've had multiple victories, but just like AIDS, we're seeing the death count rise and rise. So it's been frustrating. Peter says the slow response to COVID-19 by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio or President Trump is nothing new. We have seen again and again political leaders fail at addressing new epidemics, mostly because of a they don't understand them. There's a level of denial, and the experts don't have the power. The experts who fully recognize from day one the potential seriousness cannot pull the political levers to get society to do the right thing from day one. Peter says all you need to do is look back to how different governments responded to the AIDS crisis. In the Reagan administration, he seeded the entire administration with appointments uh, from the religious right, uh, etc., that were very cynical of expertise. And Reagan himself was cynical of it. But on the other side of the ocean, We had an equally conservative government, Margaret Thatcher, running the UK, and she did not have this anti-expertise viewpoint. So she actually brought in the epidemiologists and the experts in fighting epidemics, and she actually listened to them. Their epidemic to this day is about uh, one-third the size of the U.S.'s epidemic on a, on a per 100,000 population basis. Reagan and Thatcher, obviously, historians put them in kind of the same camp in many, many, many categories. But here was one where they were 
apples and oranges. And it all came down to, I think, a basic trust of expertise. But Peter does have a lot of faith in Dr. Fauci and his team. Peter and Mark still get together with Fauci over dinner today. When we asked Tony Fauci over one of our dinners with him four years ago when he had turned 75, if he was planning on retiring, and he, he shot that down and said, you know, no, I'm, I, my health is great. And I, I think I got another 10 years in me. And he explained he was really doing it because he wanted to still be at his desk when we finally, you know, got vaccines for HIV AIDS or, or a f- functional cure. That he was really sticking around to finish the job on AIDS, which is the whole reason we're still around doing this activism. That that's why he was here at this moment for what will end up being one of the worst pandemics in human history. And right now, I think if we do save a million lives in the U.S., it'll be because of the Tony Fauci's and the Deborah Burks. Almost 80 million people have died from HIV-AIDS worldwide since the start of that pandemic. There are lots of parallels between the AIDS pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic today. Infectious diseases, whether that's HIV or coronavirus, often fall most heavily on the shoulders of the most marginalized, the least powerful, the poorest communities. Since the early 1980s, HIV has come to disproportionately affect people of color, not just gay men. These diseases magnify long-standing social and economic inequities. As with HIV, politicians have been slow to act, weighing the political risks of doing so against the lives at stake. And in that calculation, it's clear that some lives are deemed more valuable than others. There's also been desperation for a treatment, whether that was for HIV or COVID-19 today. But one thing early AIDS activists like Mark and Peter learned is that science doesn't need to be the enemy. One major difference, though, between those early years of the AIDS pandemic and COVID-19, the pace at which science moves. And through it all has been Tony Fauci. He's the kind of guy who sees things through. And that's reassuring at a time like this. He's in it for the long haul. This end is a warning. Our democracy is under attack from the U.S. Supreme Court. In the middle of a deadly global pandemic, people across Wisconsin were planning on voting absentee to keep themselves and their families safe. But the night before the election, five Republican justices on the Supreme Court told thousands of people they would have to choose between risking their lives and forfeiting their right to vote. The Supreme Court favoring Republican interests over our democracy is nothing new. They gutted the Voting Rights Act, they invited billionaires and corporations to spend unlimited amounts trying to influence elections, they gave a green light to gerrymandering, voter ID laws, and voter roll purges. Now, a progressive movement is rising up to fight back, because it's quite possible the Wisconsin case won't be the last 2020 showdown over voting rights to be settled in the courts, and we simply can't trust this court to put aside partisan views and protect people's right to vote. Our courts are becoming too political, and it's time to say enough. Learn more about how you can join the fight by visiting demandjustice.org best. That's demandjustice.org best.
So the last bit, uh, you know, comparing Reagan to Thatcher, I, th I think it's an interesting sort of historical artifact. Unfortunately, it's not very relevant to today's situation since we've all grown and gotten past those problems of not trusting experts and <laughs> being being skeptical <laughs> of, of science. Like, we've, we've pretty much moved beyond that. Oh, yeah. All that's done and done. But the, the part that, you know, does still resonate is, is the desperation. Right. And so, you know... Whether it was AIDS or the coronavirus or any variety of illnesses or, or situations that you could be in, when you are desperate, that is when you are willing to throw out yeah. the the throw caution to the wind. You yeah. Throw out the good science. Yeah, and good science takes time. I think that's the problem, right? When you're when you're desperate, you need an answer now, you need a solution now. And unfortunately, um, although science is much, much faster than it used to be, it still takes time to do it right. And that is agonizing for someone who's, you know, just been diagnosed with some uh, form of cancer that doesn't have a lot of options on the table. Someone who has a rare disease where literally there hardly is any uh, science on that condition. Um, they're just begging for a treatment in general. People who are currently right now socially distancing, who are just like ready to go out of their mind and need to, you know, or feel like they need to get back into public. And then, of course, people who are unemployed and who want to get back to work and are economically getting hit extremely hard. Like we all there is a wishful thinking aspect to this. And it's understandable. Like it's completely understandable. People are desperate. That is, that is what we are all dealing with right now. And it, it, it just makes sense that we would hope that things are different than they are. <laughs> yeah. It, it, desperation is basically the pre-existing condition that our government is inflicting on everyone, which leads to bad thinking right. and you know false hope and buying into con artists offering, you know, fake cures on the internet mm -hmm. or, you know, any variety of ways that people are being taken advantage of or misled, which they would not be if they weren't desperate. Right. Exactly. And it's because we're not taking the steps necessary to make sure that everyone is secure. You know, hey, you may not like being socially distanced, but don't worry about your bills. Right. That sort right. of security. Have, yeah, we don't have those systems. We just don't have that. Us. Absolutely. And so it, it exacerbates everything. And, and we are so different. If you read about any other country dealing with this right now, they have much, a much, much stronger social safety net in place. People are taken care of in a way that Americans can't possibly even fathom. <laughs> um, and of course, the opposite is true. They can't imagine how right, we how could we be wouldn't. thrown yeah. to the wolves exactly. the way we are. Exactly. And so and that uh, screws up our morals and our whole view of what lives are more important than others. We have so many complicated issues there. But I just briefly want to talk about uh, something they mentioned in the clip. Um, he mentioned placebos, which... Are one of those things that so I personally have been in a, a clinical trial at NIH actually, and so when we talked about the protest there, I just imagined that campus full of protesters. I um, I'd love to see some pictures of that. Um, and it, it is a grueling experience to be in a clinical trial. Nobody really talks about that part of it. They you know you have to go in constantly and get checked and get scanned and talk to the. Um, to the physicians there and give them updates on how you're doing and keep a diary of everything you do. And it's extremely, extremely intense. And, um, and placebos usually come into effect in more. So there's usually three stages 
of uh, of a clinical trial, and the phase three version of the trial is usually a larger population of people, um, and it usually includes a placebo because what that does is say, is this drug actually doing something better than nothing at all? Like they have to prove that. They have to be able to prove that. And what is happening right now in some of the trials that are going on related to the coronavirus is that we're just rushing through the process because everyone wants a cure, a treatment right now. And so we are skipping some really critical steps here. And placebos basically are the frustrating, especially if you're on one. Imagine going into a clinical trial, we really, really need a treatment, but you get the placebo and you don't even know. They won't unblind you sometimes for a long time. Even uh, Sometimes even after you've left the trial, you may not even know. I mean, these, this is a, a frustrating thing for the individual involved. But as a scientific method, it is critical to understanding whether a drug is actually effective or not and should actually be given to people (laughs) to treat a specific disease. So I just want to mention that from a little bit of personal experience that, um, it, and, and I've, I am, you know, part of a community of people with a rare disease. We've all talked about this. There are people who are on the placebo who, you know, pretty much know they're on the placebo and are agonizing over, do I stay in this clinical trial? Clinical trial? Do I give hours of my life and time and, and whatever? And meanwhile, my, deg- my disease is progressing because I'm on the placebo and maybe I could have been helped if I wasn't. And that, that's an agonizing experience. But, but what we all as a community always say to those people is you are part of, of making progress. You are part of advancing the research. What you are doing is a service to our community and to, you know, the, the bigger, broader understanding of science. And that's, that's difficult, especially in an American culture where we think so much about individuals and less about the community as a whole. It's difficult for people to really, to grasp that kind of feeling. And, um, and it's hard, like <laughs> no matter what you think about how you're contributing to the broader knowledge, it's, it's a difficult thing to go through. I'm going to pull a bit of a Trump and just ask a scientific question off. <laughs> I'm just going to shoot from, shoot from the hip live, live on air. I, 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 you know, had enough conversations with you about these trials and heard from other people, but what you just described is that when, when a person is on a trial and what often happens is they can be in communication now, especially in mm-hmm. modern times with social media, you can be in communication with other people on the trial. Right, right. And when your results are so much different than someone else's, it convinces you I must be on the placebo. Yes, yes. I kind of I, I wonder if a better scientific method of running a placebo trial is to not tell anyone that placebos are part of the trial. Yeah, they have to, though. That, right. that is a, a requirement. No, know? I mean, I, I, I get it mm-hmm. I, that there's all sorts of... Right. Ba- but, but you're ba- saying that the benefit, or it would be a better result, maybe, if we just... If you just lie to people <laughs> and say, no, 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 you definitely have it. Trust oh, us, you, you're, yeah. you're getting yeah. the real drug. Um, the, then you can study mind over, <laughs> over, um, over medical treatment, I guess. Well, I mean, I mean because... I mean, placebo gets all sorts of complicated and people start getting genuinely better when they take placebos mm-hmm, because they're mm-hmm. convinced of it. But I sort of feel like the opposite is going to be true, too. If you're mm-hmm. convinced you are not getting the drug, then you're not really on a placebo anymore, are you? You're, <sighs> yeah, you're on a sugar pill and you're convinced that you're on a, sugar, you're pill. a sugar pill. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's not I a, know. No, it's, it's not a placebo It's a test. really tricky thing to do and there's a lot of rules and 
and, you know, specific ways that we go about it. As this guy just mentioned in the clip, though, they advocated for, for better patient advocacy during clinical trials, which is a huge, huge, like gigantic step forward. And one that I definitely benefited from personally, you know, like I was able to, to advocate for myself, to ask the questions I needed to ask, to get the care I needed to get. And, you know, it wasn't always that easy. Um, additionally, he mentioned that he, you know, they, they made progress for getting women in clinical trials, getting people of color in clinical trials, um, and trying to diversify the patient population because my God, we've been studying white men for most of our history of modern medical research. And that has not benefited us really. <laughs> so, um, we're just now learning about dosing and how it's different for women and men in many cases. And, um, all of our data is skewed. So. So yeah, there, there was a huge, huge movement of progress there, and it benefited far more than just the community that was impacted by AIDS. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, do you think that because science isn't perfect, that we should not trust it <laughs> and maybe go with some other ideas? Oh, yeah. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> so ne next up, I've got another clip is going to flow real nicely. There's uh, yet another drug that is the new the new hotness on the scene. And so this is from on the media, hot off the presses. Gosh, can this really be from only a month ago? What do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it, but it's their choice and it's their doctor's choice or the doctors in the hospital. But hydroxychloroquine, try it. There's more than ample evidence that hydroxychloroquine saves lives, speeds up recovery time, and cuts down on hospitalizations. It's also one of the safer drugs out there just by virtue of the fact that it's been around for, what, 65 years? Yes, amid a panic to find a treatment for COVID-19, certain politicians and certain corners of the media fell in love with a drug proven a few weeks later to present mortal risks outweighing any potential efficacy. This is what happens when hope triumphs over caution. The hydroxychloroquine debacle should have been a lesson learned, but now comes the bandwagon for the antiviral drug remdesivir. Gilead, the biopharmaceutical company behind the experimental drug, today reveals significant positive results in trials of the drug. Yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci was very positive about a study of an experimental drug to treat coronavirus called remdesivir. The New York Times reports that the FDA is planning to announce approval for emergency use of this drug. So you get to choose. You want good data or you want fast data. And we've been getting fast data mostly up until now with all the problems that come with it. Derek Lowe is an organic chemist who's in the pipeline blog for Science Magazine, explores drug discovery and the pharma industry. The headlong rush toward remdesivir began with the publicizing of a trial conducted at the University of Chicago. Publicized is the right word. It got a lot of publicity because what happened was this was a study being run by Gilead, the makers of remdesivir. It was open label. So it wasn't the conventional sort of blinded trial where no one knows who's getting what. This one was open label being done in, I believe, moderate to severe coronavirus patients. And there was a video chat going on between some of the physicians at the University of Chicago's health system. And one of them talked about what they'd been seeing with the drug, as far as she could tell. Someone, and we don't know who, 
was recording this video chat and later leaked the whole thing to the press. And there's some suspicion that it may be somebody connected with Gilead or someone who holds a large position in the company's stock because this news sent the Gilead shares soaring in value. It's a moral hazard because clinical trial resorts are the, the real currency of biopharma finance. Do you have a drug that works in people or do you not? So gigantic moves in stock prices occur on the basis of these things. So you have to discourage people extremely strongly from doing this kind of leaking. Now, in this case, the data had already been collected. As far as I know, they had finished up the trial and this person was talking about what they'd seen so far. So it didn't contaminate the results of the experiment such that it was. Not really, but you can contaminate the results very easily by leaking along the way. And in that case, contamination is the real word. You can mess up the trial to the point that the FDA will say, we're not taking any of these data. It found its way to the world through Stat News. Right, and Stat's a very reliable publication. If they hadn't reported, someone else would have. Journalists report news, and this is news. It would have been different if this had been an ongoing trial and reporting it would have blown the entire thing. I'm not sure what they would have done in that circumstance. A lot of the people who work at STAT have been doing this for a long time, and they know exactly what those stakes are. In any event, uh, with the publication by STAT News, the spread of the story began and the potential cure narrative with it. How hyperventilated was the reporting. Some of it was bad. And honestly, no matter what the tone of the reporting, a lot of the people seeing the headlines were going to run off with the wrong idea anyway. Someone was telling me that they were sitting at home when this news started to hit and one of their family members ran in shouting, they found a cure, they found a cure. That just makes me sad. At the same time as the press and the public perhaps was overreacting to this very preliminary research result. Scientists were also paying attention, and it's my sense that virologists and pharmacologists and immunologists were not themselves getting all hepped up. No one who really was knowledgeable about the field expected anything gigantic from this. The hope was that there would be something. The drug did shorten the amount of time that people were in the hospital, and it had a trend to possibly helping with mortality. That didn't reach statistical significance, but it might be real. And that's all we know. We know nothing else yet. All right, that's the Chicago study. There have been other data points that have trickled in. Can you tell me about them? Unfortunately, the one controlled trial we have is the one that we don't have all the data for. That's the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIH trial. Gilead has published some more retrospective, uncontrolled data. And it's almost impossible to know what to make of that kind of data. That's what I was referring to earlier when I talked about fast data and good data. The quickest thing you can collect is to say, okay, we're already giving people this drug. Because remember, remdesivir has already been tried on other coronavirus It's been tried on Ebola, any kind of RNA virus. But you say, we're already giving people this drug. Let's just 
collect the numbers on what happens to the people that we're giving it to. But that's not controlled. You don't have any standard of comparison. So at the end of that, you can say, okay, we gave it to whatever, 53 people, and here's what happened to them. You don't know what would happen to 53 people, similar disease severity, similar balance of genders and age and pre-existing conditions, who got everything except remdesivir. And without that, you really can't tell. Hydroxychloroquine was a fiasco of overhyping from the president and Fox News and others before the evidence started mounting up that it's, for many patients, quite dangerous and not necessarily effective in fighting COVID-19. The hype over remdesivir doesn't reach that scale of distortion, does it? It doesn't. Remdesivir seems to be a lot cleaner as far as adverse events go, so it's a little easier to make the call to give it to people. Well, one of the reasons that a cure is so elusive, and perhaps a vaccine as well, is that COVID-19 has properties that are baffling. All the king's horses of science and all the king's men of pharma have failed to have much success in curing viral illness of any sort. I've done antiviral research myself, and it is like breaking rocks for a living. They are very tough. Viruses have very few moving parts in them as compared to a living cell, so you don't have too many shots on goal. And that's why when you look at hepatitis C or at HIV, where we can at least stop it, if not completely eliminate it, both of those are cocktail therapies. There are several different drugs given simultaneously each of which attacks the virus in a different way. There are no single drugs that knock out a viral infection, and there's precious few combinations. So hep C really is a success story. The Gilead combination for that cures hepatitis C. Now, a lot of companies put a lot of effort into that over the years. There were a lot of competitors all working on it. There are other companies on the markets until Gilead finally blew them out of the water. But it took years of work, and I could not begin to tell you how many billions of dollars and how many man hours to get that far. That's the sort of targeted small molecule therapy that people are used to in a drug. And that's what it will take a long time to get for the coronavirus, which is why personally, I'm putting my faith more in the monoclonal antibodies and vaccine work. Dr. Fauci has not dismissed the notion that a vaccine could emerge within the next 12 to 18 months. Does uh, that seem overly optimistic to you? It's optimistic, but it's not impossible. The only thing that is on our side with this is that there are so many large organizations working on this simultaneously, each with their own angle. The failure rate for new drugs is about 90% across clinical trials. No other industry deals with that. I mean, 90% of Boeing's planes get off the ground. 90% of Pizza Hut's pizzas are perfectly edible, but 90% of clinical candidates fail. 94% of vaccine candidates fail. But if we have dozens of companies working, each with their own take on this, the odds of one of them getting through, I think are pretty good. And we already had done a lot of work on SARS and MERS, which gives us a leg up. There are coronavirus vaccines for animal diseases, so we know that in theory it's possible. I think we'll get there.
As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. So about maybe a month ago, I think I vented very briefly on one of our shows about my concern over what Gilead has been doing. And I don't think I went into great detail, but um, I just want to read a little bit from The Intercept. This is an article from March 24th, when Gilead received orphan drug status for remdesivir, which made me... um, basically made my head explode. I was so angry. Um, and here, here is why. And you'll understand I'm looking at this as someone who has a rare disease, who really depends on the Rare Disease Act, which includes the Orphan Drug Act. And I get very, very viscerally angry when companies abuse this because there's already a movement to try to fight and kill the, um, the Orphan Drug Act because of some of the incredible benefits that pharmaceutical companies can get from it. Um, I think it needs to be modified and changed. I do not think we need to get rid of it, just to be clear. Uh, so the, yeah, again, this is from The Intercept from March 24th. The law is reserved for drugs, this is the Rare Disease Act, uh, that treat illnesses that affect fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S., but a loophole allows drugs that treat more common illnesses to be classified as orphans if the designation is given before the disease reaches that threshold. As of press time, there were more than 40,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. and some 366,000 worldwide. So that's crazy. <laughs> we are we have a at that time it was labeled a pandemic. We knew that this was going to go wildfire and out of control and Gilead swooped in and abused a loophole in the Rare Disease Act to get orphan drug status for their drug Remdesivir so that they could get the benefits of the Orphan Drug Act which include having a patent on that drug for I believe it's 7 to 9 years, something insane like that so that um, a generic cannot be produced in the United States during that time. Um, it is also very, very true that Gilead Sciences Remdesivir was developed with at least 79 million in U.S. government funding, at least. Uh, and <laughs> the the fact that they have been given this de- uh, distinction by the FDA 
This means it could severely limit supply of remdesivir by granting Gilead Sciences exclusive protection over the drug and complete control of its price. Other pharmaceutical firms, including India-based pharmaceutical firm Cipla, are reportedly working towards a generic form of remdesivir, but patients in the U.S. could be prevented from buying generics with lower prices now that Gilead Sciences' drug has been designated an orphan. (sighs) My blood pressure is rising as I read this again. This just makes me want to scream. Um, And let me just, uh, I'll I'll jump in and and, uh, I'll, I'll toss in an imperfect analogy to uh, give a visual to it. The only thing that comes to mind is it's like, it's like uh, getting a patent on a snow plow in on like the last day of fall, <laughs> because everyone's <laughs> like, we, you know, we yeah. don't, we don't even need snow plows. Right. It's fall. Yeah. And yeah. So the, the way it's structured because they know that it is going to be, you know, an epidemic that they can, profit from yeah they were able to get exclusive rights under a rule that was meant to give incentives to companies to make drugs that don't treat very many people right because they could give a shit about the little diseases that don't make them a big profit (laughs) that is why this whole thing exists when when you have a, a whole system that's built on profit you then have to like twist yourself into a pretzel to figure out how to incentivize mm-hmm. a company to make drugs for more, you know, yeah. and, a, a group of people that's not like half the population. Yeah, And that's why they offer these big, you know, these big kickbacks because um, what can you offer a pharmaceutical company to make them pay attention to a small amount of people? Like you have to offer them an, the ability to make bajillions of dollars somehow, or at least a good amount and um, despite the fact that they took federal funding to develop these drugs, we're still doling out these big ticket prizes to just care, period, about somebody who's not going to make them a giant profit. I mean, it is a effed up system in every way. Um, there's got to be a better way. I know there has to be a better way, but this is what we're dealing with right now. This is the best that the rare disease community could do. Um, and this, this, uh, act has been around, I believe it's been 30 years, 20 to 30 years. Can't remember exactly. And so, and there's a lot of issues with it. And, and this is, this is companies who take advantage of it are screwing over the rare disease community. Because as soon as companies take advantage of this act, then there are a lot of people who say, we shouldn't have this at all. This shouldn't exist. What are we doing? This is wrong. And it is, it is on many levels, but what else can we do? Our system is so messed up. Um, this is what we have to offer people. So I'm just going to read one more piece of this. Uh, Quote, experts warn the designation reserved for treating rare diseases could block supplies of the antiviral medication from generic drug manufacturers and provide a lucrative windfall for Gilead Sciences, which maintains close ties with President Donald Trump's task force for controlling the coronavirus. Joe Grogan, not to be confused with Joe Rogan, Joe Grogan, who serves on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, lobbied for Gilead from 2011 to 2017 on issues including the pricing of pharmaceuticals. So there is a direct link there. Okay, it's it's super, super messy. And there are people that have been working in the system to uh, work on behalf of the pharmaceutical company and give them an edge forever, right? But now we are seeing the effects of that in terms of I mean, literally, this affects every single person in the United States. Um, so <laughs> that's that's what we're dealing with. 
and it's um it's deeply deeply upsetting <laughs> yeah the, and the other uh very recent news story that it reminds me of is the loophole in the uh you know in the recovery funds that companies like Shake Shack were taking advantage of because instead of writing the law to say, you know, companies under 500 people can take advantage of small business loans or grants, they said companies with less than 500 people per location. Right. Which means that any enormous company that has, you know, thousands of small locations mm-hmm. qualifies. Yeah. And, you know, so of, of course, they're, they are not immoral companies. They are amoral companies. It <laughs> Working is Working the system. It is absolutely their duty to work the system. And it is our duty to make sure that, uh, well, I mean, we, it, it could be our duty to completely upend the system and change yeah, things entirely. Nice. Uh, but given our current status quo, law should be written so that, you know, advantage cannot be taken like that. But of course, we have a Congress that is happy to uh, rubber stamp anything the uh, lobbyists put in front of them, mm-hmm. and that is what the restaurant lobby put in front of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add one last piece of this, which is probably already obvious to everyone listening, but the fact that Gilead can control the price of this drug is is a huge problem in America where we do not have a socialized healthcare system. Okay, so the fact is... Uh, right now, I think the Gilead has promised 1.5 uh, million vials for free to people who are who are only really sick. Apparently, they're only giving it to people who are about to go on a ventilator, who are on a ventilator. That's the level that they're holding this drug at right now. That will not go on forever. Gilead will not give this drug away for free forever. They're trying to get some good PR in the mix here. That's very obvious. And <laughs> when that good PR wears off, they are going to try to make a ridiculous profit on this. Okay. So we live in a country where not only do our laws allowed a pharmaceutical company to deny us a cheaper generic version of this drug, but then we are going to deal with our health insurance companies either like not covering it, or if they cover it, it will only be a small fraction. Or if you have a junk plan, it won't cover it at all. This is going to be <laughs> a, you know, cascading snowball situation because of the systems that we live in. And frankly, the system was built on the theme of today's show. Yeah. Desperation. Right. Right. Rare disease communities were desperate for any kind of exactly. help. Exactly. And they they couldn't redesign capitalism, <laughs> so they settled for this bullshit. Exactly. Which brings us back to, uh, circling back to the clip that we just heard. I mean, it was a perfect example of how desperate hope plays out Mm -hmm. when a drug that, like, might help a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's... Is is shouted from the rooftops as the next cure. Yeah, and it it doesn't have the kind of data to make everyone so excited, but the the hope has blinded us. The data is that it might shorten some people's illness with the disease by a, a few little days. bit yeah maybe maybe <laughs> and we're like ah the cure is here i mean i have personally seen people like they were talking about the clip i have personally seen friends of mine 
post about this on social media saying like, oh, this is the great hope, like literally using those words, like this is what we're all, we've all been waiting for, like, and just like being euphoric in their, in their uh, excitement over this. And I just, I'm reading the articles that they're posting. And in those articles, it very clearly says there is not a lot of data here. It's like, you know, maybe an option. It might help a tiny bit. And yet, Everyone's just looking at that headline, which has definitely, you know, a lot of outlets have definitely uh, overblown this for sure. And, uh, and, and that's just, they're, they're basically capitalizing on our hope and our desperation. And obviously, uh, mostly Republican politicians were pushing to open the economy before that PR blitz mm-hmm. for this drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, it's gonna. Oh, that helps. It's yeah. gonna bolster their case. They're gonna say, like, look, if we have treatments available, then maybe people will get sick, but they won't even be sick for as long, or they won't. They probably right. won't die right, as right. often. I'm guessing, yeah. as a as a politician with no expertise, I'm gonna <laughs> just gonna go out on a and who limb doesn't and, believe in science? Yeah. yeah, like I mean, hey, I'm no scientist, but yeah, right, uh, right. I got I got a hunch, yeah. and uh, you know, if if my hunch is wrong, you can vote me out. Right. Right. And so, sort of on that note, Sweden has volunteered as a test subject for the rest of the world to look at (laughs) and see what happens when you don't do major lockdown initiatives and you end up with a death rate three times as high as your neighbors. But of course, the details of that are being lost. Yeah, yeah, again, (laughs) lost in the wind. And people are holding that up. Yeah, these these headlines are crazy. It's just like Sweden didn't do anything that we did and they're doing fine. And then you read the article (laughs) and it's completely contrary to that fact. So, yeah, they, um, this idea, and I've seen this certainly circulating around the, on people on the right, but I've also seen it, people on the left talking about how, you know, uh, Sweden hardly did anything and they're doing so well. Like, isn't that amazing? And, um, and, Here's the real story. So the New York Times wrote a piece about this. They interviewed some of the scientists who were in charge over there. And and here's the real situation. Yeah, they didn't do, I guess, what we're being calling, called draconian measures where they completely shut down everything in order to lock down and order people to stay home, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not like they didn't do anything. And actually what they did is pretty, like, pretty significant. It's not nothing. They got uh, banned gatherings of more than 50 people. They closed all museums. They canceled all sporting events. And at the end of March, the authorities banned visits to nursing homes. And I'll get to why that was incredibly late uh, in a second. But that's pretty much that's pretty much it. And I understand why people when they're comparing you know, the United States or other countries with Sweden, um, why they're like, see, they hardly did anything. But those are those are big things. That's not nothing. And they are going to have a contraction of their economy. They've talked about that. It's it's not like things are totally normal in Sweden. So let's just get rid of that myth right off the table. You know, yeah, they're not fining people. Police officers are asking people to oblige. And there definitely is no mask order or no, like, uh, not even a suggestion for people to wear masks. And in fact, they said in this article that pedestrians wearing masks are generally stared at as if they've just landed from Mars, <laughs> which is crazy because they have the same science that everyone else does. But what are you going to do? So the most of this article was an interview with the country's state epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell. What he says and acknowledges himself, he said, when the responses are assessed after the crisis, Mr. Tegnell acknowledges Sweden will have to face its 
broad failing with people over the age of 70, who have accounted for a staggering 86% of the country's 2,194 fatalities to date. That percentage is roughly on par with most other countries, but some critics here say the mortality rate among seniors could have been far lower with adequate preparation. In a letter to one of Sweden's most prominent newspapers, 22 scientists accused the public health authority of negligence. They tell people stay home, but they also keep the restaurants open, said Lena Einhorn, a virologist and one of the signatories of the letter. They're advising people working in elderly homes only to wear masks when a patient is sick. Their policies are both ambiguous and rigid. And so then they go on to talk about some of these nursing homes where the nursing homes realized they needed to shut down. They needed to stop uh, having visitors come in. They needed to really basically go on lockdown because their patients were getting sick and dying at horrifying rates, as well as the people that work there. And some of these places decided on their own, we're going to, we're just going to implement some sort of lockdown here and not have any visitors because the state or the government wasn't mandating it, but they were realizing that the impact was horrific. And so some of these places were instituting their own kind of lockdown, but then were told by the government to reopen. And this is before the end of March, where apparently they did finally order that nursing homes stop visitation. But can you imagine that happening in the United States? Like, it could have happened in the United States. Like, that's something, but how angry would people be? <laughs> and so let's not believe this myth that sounds very hopeful, especially for people who are angry that the economy has kind of ground to a halt. They want to look at Sweden and say, we didn't have to do this. See, see, it wasn't necessary. And the fact is that a lot of things have ground to a halt in Sweden, and they are definitely paying the price. They are losing their elderly in in crazy numbers, considering how small that country is. So we need to put this in perspective. We need to actually read more than the headlines. Our hope can blind us. And I don't want us all to fall into this trap of everything's fine because we want it to be fine. And so let's open everything and go back to normal life. Because as many people are saying, life is just not going to be normal again, <laughs> or at least for a very long time. So today's lesson is please lose hope. Lose hope <laughs> just as gain. quickly and entirely as possible. <laughs> just just gain some sort of perspective, some sort of ability to look deeper because if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? We know that. Yeah. And and so just to wrap up, I think the the greatest hope divide we are currently working with is the inherent hope that people have that the people in charge know what they're doing. Right. There, there is this instinct to think, nah, they're, they probably got it on lockdown. Yeah. Or, they they or probably know what they're they, doing. They are surrounded by people who know what they're doing, which is a lot of what Trump supporters say about Trump. Like, it's oh, yeah, he doesn't know how to speak, and, and maybe he doesn't understand the details, but he's surrounded by a lot of people who know what they're doing. So it's fine, because it it is really painful to think about uh, a, a basically the people in charge during a crisis, especially, and think they don't know what they're doing and they're not looking out for my best interest. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> right. And, but that's something that listeners of this show are all too familiar with exactly. because we've had that feeling for three and a half years. Because that's what we're dealing with. We never had hope that Trump knew what he was doing or surrounded himself with anyone but lackeys. And, and I'll even say there have been moments during the last few years where I, even I was like, 
can I just, can I find a way to make this feel better? Like, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe, maybe, you know, what he said, he didn't really mean it that way. Or maybe the, you know, the, the, um, the motive for this wasn't actually evil or cruel. Like, I have literally tried to twist myself into a pretzel because it is uncomfortable and painful to think about how astray, adrift, um, <laughs> the chaos at the top during such a, unbelievably horrible time where we need leadership more than ever. I, just, I want to make one instant correction. He didn't just surround himself with lackeys. He also surrounded himself with uh, ideologues mm-hmm. like John Bolton, mm-hmm. who actually mm-hmm. worked studiously to make things worse. Right. He was the right. one in charge of disbanding the, oh, yeah. the pandemic response team. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to suggest that Trump was so terrible he would only have lackeys. It's there are also the people who are like, Evil, real, really like striving to make things bad. No, yeah. Like not just incompetent, right. but like competently bad. Yeah. 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 So I guess honestly the, the hopeful takeaway that I take from this mm-hmm. is I mean, tongue in cheek as it is, uh the, the lesson to be learned really is about losing hope. And since I lost hope so long ago, <laughs> but now that I know that losing hope is the path to safety, <laughs> it makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Having no hope is exactly what we need right now. Ugh. And I've, I've been practicing for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I feel like it's okay to just have a little bit of hope in science. Like I keep, I keep saying that to myself. Like if you believe in, if you believe in the scientific method, if you believe that in, in the fact that, um, it, well, this is just true that like thousands of scientists all over the world are working together in some capacity, like besides the U S apparently everyone else is working together <laughs> to fight this thing. Um, they're, you know, trying, they're all coming at different angles. Like the guy in the clip said to try to fight this. And, um, yes, America is not contributing to the global fund to fight coronavirus. Yes. America is defunding or pulling their support from, um, the who, uh, there are lots of negative things that America is doing. However, once again, we're in that sort of um, the lone libertarian in a in a world where everyone else is preparing and working hard to solve problems for the community. Um, we're probably going to benefit accidentally. Not that there won't be some messed up, weird version, like Americanized version of of all of this. If there is a cure, who knows if we'll get it or we'll have to pay through our nose for it or whatever. But it does give me some semblance of real hope that there are countries all over the world with the brightest minds in science and epidemiology working to fight this. And I guess that's what I can cling to (laughs) for now. I guess that's a slightly rosier version of what I said. Yeah. (laughs) And with that, we will wrap up as always. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a voicemail to be played on the show. The number to dial 202-999-3991, or you can email us, either a recorded voice message or I guess people write text in messages and (laughs) communicate that way as well. Uh, You can reach me at j at bestoftheleft.com. And I'm Amanda at bestoftheleft.com. Okay. Now, uh, apologies. I I hate to interrupt. I also hate to be interrupted, but I don't know. Maybe they cancel each other out when it's me interrupting myself. In any case, uh, 
after we recorded that whole show, uh, you know, that was past Jay and Amanda. This is present Jay uh, talking. After we recorded that that whole show, I had uh, sort of an afterthought, a, a, a clip that I'd heard a couple of weeks ago bubbled back up to the surface of my mind, and I thought, no, th- it's too perfect to not include as part of this conversation. And it turns out that the person being interviewed in this clip I want to play for you is Dr. Lena Wynn, the same person who wrote the article in the Washington Post that Amanda was quoting earlier. So we sort of come full circle. But just to set this up a little bit, it's mostly self-explanatory, but uh, Lena Wynn was brought on to The Al Franken Show to have a discussion about what it's like to be a medical expert whose job it is to convince politicians to do things that are in the medical and health interest of the public, which is not always an easy task. And there's been a lot of criticism, not so much of Dr. Fauci, but definitely of Dr. Burks about the way she has been conducting herself. And I probably would have been in that same category myself and, and, you know, criticizing this doctor who's clearly saying things that aren't true or believable. But this interview that I want to share puts all of that in a brand new light. So it doesn't mean that the the thinking public should necessarily be uh, taking Dr. Burks at her word at this moment in time. But if you understand that she is speaking to a specific audience, then you then you can understand you know why she is doing what she is doing. If you don't, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then don't worry, all will be explained. And this is a long clip, but honestly, I think the whole thing is worth it. I I, I listened to it again, trying to think of what I could cut out. And I thought, no, it, it it's all good. It it all gives context. So have a listen. Uh, you were. Um public health commissioner uh, for the city of Baltimore under two different mayors, right? That's correct. Yes. I first was appointed by Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, and she decided to not seek re-election. And then at that time, then State Senator Catherine Pugh was elected the mayor, and I served under her administration as well. Um, She has since, um, Mayor Pugh has since, as your listeners may know, been convicted of a number of things and um and sentenced or i don't know if she's been sentenced actually but what she did was uh, she did fraud and tax evasion convicted of those things and i'm wondering if there's a little bit of a parallel between your role there and mayor pew and a a dr burks or uh dr fauci and donald trump if there's any parallels at all Meaning that you're dealing with someone who wasn't completely um, sane or or reliable, or uh, that that maybe you had to couch what you were saying uh, differently than you might with with another leader. Yeah, I mean, I think as a health commissioner for any mayor for any elected official. Your job is always to convince that person of the importance of public health, because that's what you're thinking about the whole time. But that's not their job. They're not going to know why public health is so important. And actually, because of that saying that public health 
it works when it's invisible, that there's no face of public health, you have to put the face on public health. So no matter who it is, even if it's somebody who is wonderful and really understands um, medicine and science and abides by data, it's still your job to connect their priorities. But is it harder? Let me ask you this. Is it harder when uh, someone doesn't really value science and data? Like, for example, evidently, well, you would concur with the observation that President Trump doesn't seem to actually care that much about science and data. I think that is a fair assessment. But there are things that President Trump cares about. And when I look at what Tony Fauci and Deborah Birx and the other really incredible public health leaders who are working on COVID-19, you know, I've been I've been listening to a lot of um, these press conferences that President Trump has had. I keep thinking about what would I do if I were standing beside him? I mean, I, I can tell you the things that I wouldn't do. I, I wouldn't roll my eyes or make faces or something else that would suggest that I disagree with him, even if I did. But what I would do is to try to think of what are his priorities? What matters to him? How can I make sure that the message and the overall effect that I would want to have can be couched in a way that emphasizes his priorities? I mean, that's the job that I had as the health commissioner for both of these mayors. Again, one mayor who was fantastic and the other one who had some obvious issues. But for both of them, that was my job to understand what are their priorities. Can can you say it was different from one the first mayor and the second mayor, the mayor that's been convicted of these crimes? Was it different for her, the way you had to talk to her? Of course. I mean, it was different, but it was also, I think the underlying thread is the same, though, that you still, it's still your job as the appointed official in charge of health to get them to think about health. Now, one method may be that you use science and data, and they could be convinced using science and data because that's what they listen to and and agree um, with data and evidence-based decision-making. That would be ideal. But there are other times when there may be somebody that, that you're working for who doesn't share those priorities. And it's your job to figure out who are the credible messengers to that person and what is the message that you would be using to convey to them that they in the words and the priorities that they understand. And that's what I learned a lot, I think, in my in my role, especially working for the second mayor about how to find those voices that she trusted, because even if that voice wasn't me, there was a way that I could get to her. And I could imagine, I don't know, but I could imagine that that's what Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and others are probably working on now, too. Yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Fauci, you mentioned rolling your eyes. I think he did that. And I think that's why you mentioned it. Uh, he also gave an interview where he said, I can't shove him out of the way and have him uh, when he's going to say something that isn't true. And then he was gone for a little bit, and then he's back, and he hasn't done that since. And uh, you saw the interview that Dr. Burks gave to uh, the Christian Broadcasting Network. Did you see that? I did, yes. How would you describe the job President Trump is doing behind the scenes and in front of the cameras during these daily briefings that we're seeing? What's been your perspective, Dr. Burks? 
he's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. Because in the end, data is data, and he understands the importance of the granularity. And I think he's been really excited about finding the level of detail that we've been able to now bring over the last few weeks to really understand who's at the greatest risk for severe illness, who will have mild and less uh, and asymptomatic disease and really calling on every American to do that social distancing because some people may not know they're actually infected and be unknowingly spreading the virus. And that all comes from the president seeing the data and then really directing these policies and these guidelines that go out to the American people. That to me was odd. Because I think anybody who's seen this president, like when he was saying early on that this was all under control, right? Mm -hmm. He clearly wasn't looking at the data. When he was saying that anyone who wants a test can get a test, I don't know how closely he was paying attention to the granular details of what was going on. My feeling is, is I felt this was close to a hostage video and I'm sure that wasn't her intent, but very often in a hostage video, you send out a message. I'm exaggerating so much that, you know, I'm being forced to say this. I think that your position with your second mayor, I'm curious about it because I think it may be somewhat parallel to what Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, you made the parallel, I think yourself, have with, with, with Donald Trump. And I think you would acknowledge that so far the president has been incredibly irresponsible. And he's been erratic, which is certainly not helpful in a time of a public health emergency. I mean, consistent messaging is really important, knowing that things change. I mean, I think the American people would understand if he said, this is our course of action right now, and we have to change this course of action in a week for this following reason. I think people understand that, but the erratic messaging is a problem um, and certainly does not instill public confidence. But to your point, Al, I mean, I do, I understand the position that Dr. Brooks is in. So I, I don't know her. I, I haven't spoken to her. So I, this is not, this is just my own speculation. I didn't see her um, her comments that you just um, stated as a hostage video. Actually, I saw it as quite the opposite. I saw it as this is what she had to do in order to gain credibility with the president. And I've had to do a lot of that myself, as in I always told the truth. I mean, I, I always looked for what are the things that I could praise my elected official for? I would not give false praise because that's just not that's not telling the truth. But I would find whatever it is that I could, that I also thought that this person would value. And I would say that. And that kind of praise, and, and it exaggerated too, because you know that type of exaggeration may be important to that elected official, as I would imagine it is to Trump. I saw that as her saying, how can I be effective in my goal? Which in this case, I, I think, involves extending social distancing guidelines, 
making sure that President Trump is saying something that's in line with public health to the American people. Um, I mean, she her job is to serve the American public and protect health and well-being. And I saw what she said as that's what she had to do. You know, whatever she had to do behind the scenes to get to that point, I don't know. But that's what she had to do in order to convince him that she was credible in his eyes. So you really think that it's a true statement that she believes that his ability to analyze and integrate data has been a real benefit? I think she saw one example of it and said, <laughs> I can see, I can talk about this Good. and okay. have it be honest and have it be something that he would appreciate and that his audience would appreciate. And that's why she said it. I have many colleagues who are um, appointed officials, who are public health officials, who may work for individuals who don't understand public health and don't value science. And these are the techniques that we all have to use because at the end of the day, it's not about us. We have to subsume our own ego to say things that, again, hopefully are honest, but are are not what we might have otherwise said if not for this higher purpose. And I think you would agree with a lot of people, and I think a majority of Americans, that this is kind of an extreme example of this. Yes, definitely. On every level. I mean, it's an extreme example because of how large the platform is and also the stakes that are involved. It's also an extreme example because of the types of things that President Trump has been saying. I mean, it's, you know, I, again, I watch these press conferences and every time I'm thinking, wow, if I heard this, how, and I needed him to walk this back, what on earth would I have to do to get there? Right. I mean, who would I have to talk to to get him to back down? What's the messaging that would not have him lose face and he could still back down? How can we get to that point? That's what goes through my mind. And I am quite certain that that is what the public health officials working for him are thinking, too. Again, I, I find it very interesting that you've been in a very parallel situation. You're an emergency physician, right? Emergency room That's physician. Right. You're not a mental health expert, but you must have in an emergency room, you must have to try to uh, determine whether someone mental health isn't is a part of this, right? Yes, and it often is. Okay, now I would contend there's a mental health component uh, that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are, are working with. I mean, I I wouldn't be able to give a diagnosis, of course, because I have not, not examined him. I will say that, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I let let me use that caveat. But I can tell you, he's insane. I mean, I think that they need to contend with some extremely challenging situations with someone who will say one thing one day and another another day, and completely deny what he said the first time. I mean, it it is extremely challenging. And so I think they are walking a very tight line because the worst thing that could happen is if they get on the president's wrong side. And we know that he fires people and, and has no hesitation to do so. And I think it would be just a calamity that I can't even imagine if he gets rid of Dr. Fauci in particular, but also since Dr. Burke seems to have his ear and Vice President Pence's ear, if she were to go, 
and they were replaced by people who the public health community would not recognize as experts. It would be so tragic for the outcome of so many patients, so many people in America. And so the best thing that they can do really is whatever it takes, whatever it takes for them to say to him behind closed doors or even in public, as long as it's honest, we just need them to do their job and hang on to their jobs because that's what the American people need. Okay, I would I would disagree with you a little bit, which I think what Dr. Burks said was so exaggerated that it wasn't exactly honest. But I'm actually on her side here in the sense that what I want people to hear from you as, as someone who's a, pretty much an expert on on this stuff, and especially on being the advisor to someone in authority, that they're looking at a situation, Burks and Fauci, where they are talking to each other, I assume, saying, like, we have to be here. Because if he gets rid of us, like, he gets rid of everybody, and he can get he can get mad at you for almost anything. Mm-hmm. If, if he gets rid of us and replaces us with toadies, like he usually does, um, it's going to mean hundreds of thousands of more deaths of Americans, probably. Therefore, I will stand out there. I will not roll my eyes, Tony. Come on. That was a mistake. (laughs) Don't do that. I don't want to be left alone with this guy. And if it means blowing smoke up his butt on Christian broadcasting, I'll do it. That's right. But it's on us to be here and keep the people around him who aren't as crazy as him listening to what we have to say so that he goes back from, okay, everybody in the pews on Easter to saying, oh boy, it's very serious. You've got to stay in place for another month, right? That's exactly right. And and I'll, I'll give you an example that's not nearly so dramatic as um, as as what would happen if we had no social distancing in um, um, in this country. And this is a, this is a, a public record case here in Baltimore. So when when Mayor Pugh first started, she had some views about addiction that did not comport with science. Um, she had made some comments about addiction, including that if she had a child, she said this to the Baltimore Sun, that if she had a child with addiction, she would buy that person a one-way ticket to Timbuktu and not have them come back until they were cured. You know, they have very good treatment in Timbuktu. Hazelden has (sighs) a branch there. Okay, go ahead. So she said this crazy thing. Go ahead. And of course... (laughs) All these reporters called me because actually the I had made addiction treatment the number one priority for my tenure in Baltimore. And so um, to have the incoming mayor say these things that were clearly very much the opposite of everything I had said and done as the health commissioner, it was a front page story. And so all these people called me. And I know what advocates and scientists and public health officials in the city or other public health leaders in the city expected me to say, right? They wanted me to denounce the mayor and say, 
that's not the case. Addiction is, is, a, is a disease. How dare she say these things as it flies in the face of everything we've done? I mean, I think there are a lot of advocates who wanted to hear that from me. But I knew that if I said that, she could have, first of all, just fired me and said, this person isn't the, the health commissioner that I want, and who knows who she would have hired instead. But I thought, even if she didn't fire me, I would lose my credibility with her. And if the ultimate goal is to get her to change her mind and, and do very differently when it comes to addiction and support addiction treatment, I needed to find a different path to get to that. And so I came under heavy criticism for weeks because I didn't. Uh, it looked like I was doing nothing. It looked like I was somehow supporting her in order to defend my own job. But actually, I was working behind the scenes to figure out who were the people that she listened to, to get her messaging to change. And actually, within a couple of months, she was giving press conferences with materials that I wrote, talking points that I wrote, that had people commenting on how she was such a progressive mayor when it came to drug treatment and recognizing addiction as a disease. I mean, ultimately, that's the outcome that we want. It's not the personal pride of me standing up and saying, yes, you know, here, the mayor's wrong, and I'm going to change your mind, and here's why. It's ultimately getting to that point where they're doing the right thing. And if I have to swallow my pride and stand next to her while she said some crazy things, then that's the price I'm willing to pay in order to save people's lives in my city. And I think that that's the same thing um, or a similar thought process that's going on in Dr. Fauci and Dr. Brooks's minds too. So in other words, you are a public servant and a responsible adult. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and you recognize that your service <laughs> is to the people. And in order to serve the people, you have to do whatever it takes to get along with the elected official, because that's your job. So hopefully you found that fascinating. I certainly found it fascinating. And, and the one thing I would add to it that I'm I'm reading between the lines, I'm I'm you know interjecting my own uh, perspective on, on all this. The the doctor did not mention it this way. You know her perspective was that everything these doctors are saying they are saying in order to keep themselves sort of in the good graces of Trump, not for their own benefit, but for the greater good so that they can continue to be there and to, uh, you know, do the best job they are able to under the circumstances. What I would add to that though, is particularly when, uh, going on, you know, doing an interview somewhere like Christian broadcasting, the way she answers there, it's not just about, praising Trump so she doesn't lose uh, face with Trump or Trump doesn't lose face or she doesn't lose, you know, prestige in his mind, you know, whatever. It's also about the audience. And if you are trying to convince a group of people through the media to take this health crisis seriously, if you say anything the least bit critical of someone who they have decided to put all of their trust in, well, then they won't trust you. And and I think basically what she does in that clip is say, Trump is great. Trump is smart. Trump is good at analyzing data. And that's why Trump has been uh, saying that we need to pursue all of these safety measures when actually he hasn't been saying that. So she's lying, saying that he's great. And then she interjects her own perspective on the safety measures that we should be uh, you know, actively participating in so that the audience 
who she is lying to then believe, well, because this person is praising Donald Trump, then I will believe what they have to say. And then she can interject some truth into that interview and have it be believed by the audience. So I, I think there's a whole lot of layers of of what's going on here with the reasoning behind the very strategic line that that makes her sound absolutely insane to any normal thinking person, but makes her seem trustworthy to this huge demographic. I mean, I'm not saying more than half the country, but you know, a, a large chunk of the country that if they don't take this seriously could be the cause of it perpetuating itself for, for much longer. There's a real old example. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there for fun back. Uh, I mean, if anyone remembers Michelle Bachman, she was sort of famously tea party, right wing Republican and, and really, you know, media friendly and, and out there a lot. And there was this one instance when I, I guess it was, Obama giving a state of the union address and she, uh, Michelle Bachman gave not the Republican response, which is very normal. She gave the tea party response, which is a brand new thing that they just made up, but sort of media went along with it. And what they ended up having was instead of one camera that Michelle Bachman could look into and then have that feed be shared by multiple news agencies. What they had instead was two cameras. One camera was set up to go straight to the Tea Party Nation website, and then another camera was used to be shared widely. And so what what ended up happening is that she looked directly into the Tea Party camera. And so if you were watching on the Tea Party website, well, then everything seemed normal. She's just talking into a camera. If you were watching anywhere else, she looked like she wasn't doing it right. She's looking to the side instead of looking into the camera. And Sam Cedar made this, this great observation that it was sort of a perfect analogy for what it's like to try to talk to both the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party and the rest of the nation simultaneously is that if you are speaking to one group or the other, you will look crazy to the one you're not speaking to. So, so Michelle Bachman was speaking directly to the Tea Party Nation, and she looked insane to everyone else because she's looking to the side of the camera, which is a very strange and off-putting thing to observe. But if she had done the opposite, if she had tried to talk to the American people, then she would have looked crazy on the Tea Party website. And and that's kind of what we're seeing here, that, that Dr. Burks, in order to seem sane and rational— to people who are disconnected from rationality, she has to sound crazy to us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be criticizing her for it. It's it's a very calculated form of lying and deception, all for the good of people who are too irrational to take care of themselves. Okay, and now with that, we are finally done. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands. Stay awesome. Stay awesome.